Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. The scripture today is being read from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Joseph and his brothers grew old and died, but their children's children stayed on in Egypt where they became a very large family. Later on, a new king began to rule, but this pharaoh did not remember Joseph and he didn't like God's people. He made them into his slaves and beat them and made them work harder and harder. God's people cried out to God to rescue them and God heard them. He remembered his promise to Abraham. He would look after his people. He would find a way to set them free. One day Moses was looking after sheep when something caught his eye. A bush was behaving very oddly. It was flickering with flames, but its leaves weren't burning up. He took a closer look. Moses boomed a large, a big voice. Moses leapt back. The bush was talking to him. I have heard my people's cries, God said. I have seen their tears. So I have come down to rescue them. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go free. Moses was afraid, but God said, I will be with you. So Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Moses began, God says... God, said Pharaoh, never heard of him. Moses kept going. God says, let his people go free. Why should I, Pharaoh said. Don't want to. Won't. So he didn't. So God gave Pharaoh ten warnings called plagues. First, God turned the river Nile into blood. No one could drink the water. But still, Pharaoh would not let them go. So God made frogs come hopping and leaping and jumping. In your bed, frogs. In your hair, frogs. In your soup, frogs. All over everywhere, frogs. Make them go away, Pharaoh screamed. Then your people can go. So God took the frogs away. But Pharaoh changed his mind. You can't go, he said. Then God sent zillions of gnats. But still Pharaoh said no. So then God sent swarms of flies, flies buzzing in your eyes, flies. <clears throat> and after that, sickness and horrible boils and huge hailstones and a storm of locusts, then darkness when it should have been day until it seemed that the whole world, creation and everything, was coming undone falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. But each time, Pharaoh said, make it stop and then I'll let them go. And each time when God made it stop, Pharaoh changed his mind and said, actually, no, you can't go. Finally, Moses warned Pharaoh, obey God or he will have to send the worst thing of all. Pharaoh just laughed. So God said, the oldest boy in each family of Egypt 
must die, but my people will be safe. God told his people to take their best lamb, to kill it, and to put some of its blood on their front doors. When God passes over your house, Moses explained, God will see the blood and know that the lamb died instead of you. That night, it was just as God had said. Suddenly, piercing the darkness, echoing down the corridors of the palace, came a blood-curdling scream. Pharaoh's oldest son had died. At last, Pharaoh did what God said. Get out, Pharaoh shouted, just go. And so that very night, Moses and God's people fled out of Egypt and out of slavery. They were free at last. God's people would always remember this great rescue and call it Passover. But an even greater rescue was coming. Many years later, God was going to do it again. He was going to come down once more to rescue his people. But this time, God was going to set them free forever and ever. The word of the Lord. It is the weekend showdown, so I have to ask, how many of you want the 49ers to win? Oh, how many of you want the Chiefs? All right, all right. So how many of you are looking more forward to the commercials than the actual game? All right. It is the showdown weekend, and there will be blood and frogs and gnats and flies and anthrax and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and death. The plagues of Egypt... 1446 B.C. You know they're not actually called plagues in the text. They're called signs. My signs and wonders. And so I want to ask God, what do you want us to see in these signs? But before we dive into that question, we need to pause and just acknowledge something in the room. In the room, there are two kinds of people. There are those who believe that uh, our reality and existence here is a closed system, that there's nothing beyond us, there's nothing after life, there's nothing before. We are here by random chance, and when we die, we're done, and when the sun burns out, it's over. That is a worldview common in our culture. There are also those of us in this room who believe we live in an open system, that this is a created universe, that there is someone above and beyond this existence, and that sometimes God takes his gloves off and reaches his hands down unmistakably into history and does things that could be called supernatural. And so the choice is yours as to what kind of existence this is, closed, open, My only encouragement to you is this. Whatever you come down and wherever you land, where do you get your information? Have you tracked it historically? And does it meet the deeper needs 
of your heart's existence, needs of beauty and love and morality. Wrestle with those things. We are proclaiming the Christian worldview here this morning, and actually, you need to know Christianity, its entire existence sits on the miraculous, namely the miracle of Jesus walking out of his grave by his own power. But we do want to ask the question today, when it comes to the signs of Egypt, what does God want us to see. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching through the entire Bible this year, Genesis to Revelation. We are doing it so that we remember that the Bible is one book, one story about one person, Jesus Christ, proclaiming one thing, the rule of God in reality. We are doing it so that we know God. We need to talk about today 500 years of history in three minutes. Are you ready? Strap in. Here we go. Last week, we left off with Abraham, a family that God had called who would become a blessing to all the nations of the world. And through this family, God would offer a relationship with him to every nation in the world. And then the promise comes through Isaac, and then the promise comes through Isaac's son, Jacob, and then the promise comes through Jacob's 12 sons, especially uh, in the last part of Genesis, the son Joseph, who through a series of unfortunate events is sold into slavery in Egypt, but through a series of fortunate events rises up and becomes second in command uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt and is able to rescue the family of Israel, 70 strong, from a deep famine. And then they end up in Egypt and the family now begins to become a nation. And here's what happens, Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You may uh, recall hearing this word fruitful, it comes from Genesis 1, and uh, it was the command that God gave to the human society to, to be fruitful, uh, except now with Israel... They were being fruitful, not with God in the realm of the garden, but under the rule of a man called Pharaoh. Pharaoh is by far the most evil and pernicious character that we've encountered in the story thus far. Pharaoh decided that he would take good and evil and redefine it in terms of his Egypt-first political agenda. And what he began doing was, first of all, to su suppress people groups uh, keeping Egypt on top. And so Israel ends up in slavery. And then to control the population growth of Israel, you may recall that Pharaoh initiates an Egypt first plan where any Hebrew baby boy that was born was commanded to be thrown into the Nile River. This man is an evil man, redefining what is good and evil. Understand, 400 and 30 years, Israel lives in slavery under the reign of Pharaoh. I, I just sit in, I mean, that's as long as America has been known. Plymouth Rock. 430 years, here was the existence of God's people. Live, make bricks, and die. God, don't you see what's happening? Live, Make bricks and die. God, please help us live. Make bricks 
and die until an Israelite family descending all the way back to one of the 12 sons called Levi floats knowing the currents rivers the, the river currents of the Nile floats their baby boy whose name they named him draw out or lift up and the currents take him to just where the daughter of the Pharaoh happened to be bathing in the Nile and finds him. You might remember his name, Moses. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's palace. But as it so happened, he was raised by his own family who happened to be the closest nurse nearby. And because they, Moses was instilled with the Hebrew values of the, the, the uh, value of life, one time Moses uh, observes an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and he intervenes and in a rage of anger makes a mistake, kills the Egyptian, has to flee. And so he lives the next 40 years of his life in Midian where he falls in love with a Midian girl and becomes a shepherd. So here you have Moses, 80 years old. You have Israel, the nation, 430 years in slavery. And then we read this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And now it's Divine Super Bowl Sunday. God is going to engage in the signs. And the question for you and for I, me, is what will we see in these signs? The first thing I think that we see is that God, the Lord, is a God of power. Power. Now, understand Egypt. At this particular point in history, they are at the top. They are the Machu Picchu. They, they are the most powerful military force in the world, the wealthiest nation in the world, the nation who ruled and subdued other nations. They are at the top of power. And they were also, we now know, one of the most religious cultures that has ever lived. I mean, even today, you can get down to the Denver Museum of Natural History and see that anything Egyptian there is about two things, a temple or a tomb for the afterlife. And all of the Egyptian literature that we have today is usually prayers addressed to God or addresses about God to the other Egyptians. They were by far one of the most religious cultures of all of history, and at the center of that religious culture was the Pharaoh. You see, the Pharaoh was considered to be the son of the most high god, Re. So in the Egyptian org chart, you have Re, and then you have the Pharaoh, and then you have this other level of gods, high gods in Egyptian culture that ran the world. And what we're about to observe is a smackdown of the Hebrew god on every other Egyptian god. You see, you need to know the Pharaoh, he's not an atheist. He's a religious pluralist. And his view to life is, well, you have your gods and I have my gods. I don't know your gods, but my gods rule. He says it this way. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So the Lord is going to answer this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? At the end of it all, we read in Exodus 12, 12, what happened? That same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment 
on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So what's interesting is that as you work through the plagues, you understand, first of all, the, the staff that God gave to Moses and said, that's your first sign, throw it down, it becomes a snake. Well, it's an interesting word choice. In the Hebrew, it's not actually the word serpent. It's actually the word cobra, or sometimes translated dragon. And then you say, oh, why is that? Well, it's because the Hebrew god of the, sorry, the Egyptian god of wisdom was a cobra. And then you look at the Nile turning to blood. Well, the Nile was one of those high gods that Egypt worshiped as the god of agriculture provision. You look at frogs, the Egyptian god of fertility. You look at the sun and the moon, they worship them as gods, and they're the ones that are darkened in the middle of the day. Every single plague is a subversion, a, a conquering of an Egyptian god by the true god of Egypt. We read about it in, in this, after, uh, the, before the hail plague comes in Exodus 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose here is to show God's name to Egypt and that there's no one like him in all the earth. Now that reminds us, we need to go back a few chapters to a very definitive moment in the story when God actually gives to Moses his name. Uh, up until that point, God has just been called El or Elohim, which is the usual word for God. But here in Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush, Moses says, you want me to go and talk to Pharaoh? Who should I tell him is coming? And God says, tell him my name. I am that I am. Eyah, Asher, Eyah. You see, God's name is a sentence. God's name is the sentence that begins every sentence. God's name is the sentence that begins every story. God is self-sufficient, inexhaustible life, and everything that exists exists because God is life. Eya, Asher, Eya. I am that I am. Moses, go and tell them. Go and tell Pharaoh, I'm going to put down every Egyptian god, and what you need to know is I am that I am. It's God's name, and that there is no one, because he is I am, there's no one like him. Everything else is in a category, right? You and I are human beings, Fido's a dog, Aspen's a tree, Earth is a planet, Milky Way is a galaxy, devil is a, a demon, Gabriel is an angel, but only God is God. Everything else has a beginning. Everything else is created. Everything else is dependent. Everything else is derivative. Only God is God. He is in a class by himself. I am that I am. So Moses says, well, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not a great public speaker. Notice how God responds to him in chapter four. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak 
and, and teach you what to say. In other words, when tomorrow you get up and you've got a hard week of work again, you gotta go through maybe some hard conversations, some, some difficult parts of your work, what should you do? Well, you should look in the mirror, our culture says, and say this, I am good enough, I am strong enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> I'm suggesting that's far too small to start your week. I'm suggesting that the most important thing about you is not who you are, but who is with you. I am that I am is with you. Jesus and Moses were playing golf, by the way, and <laughs> Jesus approached, it's a par three, about 200 yards, and a water hazard in front of the green, and Moses says, Jesus, what are you swinging? And he says, a seven iron. And Moses says, who do you think you are, Tiger Woods? And Jesus, whack, 150 yards plunk right into the water. Moses says to Jesus, stay there, I'll be right back. He walks down, the water obediently parts, he gets the ball, comes back, gives it to Jesus, Jesus tees it up again, approaches the ball, and Moses says, Jesus, what are you swinging? And Jesus says, seven iron. And Moses says, Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, Tiger Woods. And he swings, hits it again, 160 yards, plunk. This time Jesus runs down, gets the ball, he's walking on the water, looking for the ball, and the foursome behind them come up and say to Moses, who does that guy think he is, Jesus Christ? And Moses says, no, he thinks he's Tiger Woods. <laughs> How absurd for Jesus Christ to think he's Tiger Woods. How absurd for any of us to think that we're anyone like Tiger Woods because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So parents, no offense to Tiger Woods, but why in the world would you want your child to grow up to be Tiger Woods? Or Alex Morgan? Or Ryan Gosling? Or Jennifer Lawrence? When even they are called to become something greater. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The most important thing about you is not who you are, but who's with you. The Lord, he's God, and he is a powerful God. But he's also a God of judgment. The Lord, judgment. You know, the scholars what they point out as you read the commentaries on these plagues is how like unnecessary they seem to be. I mean, they're natural, they're consequential, and they seem to drag on for days, if not weeks. I mean, you have the river turning to blood, which sends out the frogs. The frogs die, which sends out the gnats and the flies. The gnats and the flies bring the anthrax, which bring the human boils, and you know all this stuff. Frankly, this whole thing could have been over in 30 minutes. That staff that was divinely charged, Moses and Aaron could have walked into Pharaoh's court and just pointed it at people in Pharaoh's court and they would spontaneously combust and boom, boom, boom. Pharaoh, let them go. No? Boom, boom, boom. Pharaoh, there's two left. Are you going to let them go? Boom, boom. Pharaoh, I mean, this could have been over so much quicker. What in the world is going on? Chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart 
and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. That word harshly can be translated capriciously or connivingly. Uh, Some translate it toying, that God is toying with Egypt. Now, why is God toying with Egypt? Because Egypt is toying with God. Because Egypt is throwing their babies into the Nile. Because Egypt is oppressing entire people groups. You see, God, who made the world, has ingrained in the world his moral character. And when any nation begins to work primarily against God's moral character, chaos ensues. Chaos called judgment. Preach it with me. Here's how it works. Would you say this out loud with me? Everything God tells us to do aligns with how he has made the world. Thus, when we disobey God, we violate the fabric of reality, which leads to disintegration and chaos in our lives. What we see, because Egypt had been toying with divine imperatives in, in reality, is that God now is toying with Egypt for all the world to see, to say, this is what happens when a nation leaves me behind. This is what happens. But you know, it's not only true on a national level, it's true on an individual level when we violate the fabric of God in creation. A 58-year-old man went to see his doctor for a physical. She was young. She was half his age, but they sat down together after, and she, with a stern look on her face, says to the 58-year-old man, your blood pressure is high, your cholesterol is high, and you're five pounds from being obese. So what does the 58-year-old man say to the young doctor? He did not say, well, that's a naked grab for power. Who do you think you are? Nor did the 58-year-old man say, What are you going to do, arrest me if I don't start portion control? No, what I said was, uh (laughs) uh-oh. You see, she was giving me directives because she knows how the human body works. She studied it with most of her life. She knows that if you do these good things in your diet and in your exercise and in your lifestyle, then you will flourish. And if you... If you don't do these good things, there will be chaos and disintegration. How much more with God, a thousand times more, not only because he knows how the human body works, but because he made the human body. Not just that he made the physical body, but he made the emotional and the spiritual body. How much more do his direct... You see, when God says do, he means do help yourself. And when he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And so when he gives us the prime directive to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, what happens when we say, well, I hear you, but... I I like this, and we put work at the center. What happens when we love work with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? I'll tell you what happens. Disintegration. Disintegration of your family, disintegration of your emotional health and your physical health. 
What happens when we don't put Jesus at the center and learn to forgive others? I'll tell you what happens. Disintegration. Because if you can't learn to forgive the people who hurt you, you will live a life of bitterness that will come out sideways with everything you, everyone you know. And it won't be just against that person who, who hurt you. If she was a woman, you'll begin to hate all women. And if that person who hurt you was a man, you'll begin to hate all men. And if that person who hurt you was of a race, different racial background, you'll begin to hate all different racial backgrounds. Until you learn to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and learn to be a forgiving person like him. God is a God of power. And the most important thing about you as I am is with you. And God is a God of judgment, his character woven into the fabric of reality and we resist his directives at our own peril. But even in the midst of judgment, God is the God of salvation. The other thing that the scholars and the commentaries write about is how in these plagues God seems to pull his punches, right? When the hail's gonna come, you read on in chapter nine, God goes on to say, so this hail, there's nothing like it before, there's nothing like it after. So what you really should do, Egypt, is get your cows in the barn and your employees in your house. Now why, if the purpose of these plagues was to make them beg for mercy and squirm, would God pull his punch and say, well, you better protect the lives that you're responsible for? Why? I'll tell you why. Because this whole thing is not just about God saving Egypt, or I mean Israel, out of slavery. This is also inviting Egypt to participate in the divine mission of God. And we know that when the Passover happens, many of the Egyptians actually, with their wealth and money, support Israel leaving Egypt. You see, he's trying to save Israel. He's trying to use Israel to save Egypt. I would even argue in this text, this could be a whole nother discussion. Buy me a cup of coffee, we'll talk. I would even argue that God's trying to extend some grace to Pharaoh here because what's interesting is that in Pharaoh, the first five plagues, the text says Pharaoh hardens his heart or his heart was hardened. In the last five plagues, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart which means two things. One, the more you resist God, the more resistant you will become to God. But two, there is no one at the beginning who's beyond the reach of his grace. And I would contend that even Pharaoh had a choice at the beginning of how he would respond to the directive of God. That's a mystery on how the divine will and the human free agency interact. It's always mystery. But there's a difference between the first five and the second five. I think even Pharaoh had a choice. God saves. He's powerful. He's judging but he's even in the midst of the judgment working to save, which is why he sent his son Jesus to us. So Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. The brilliant skies open and all of Jesus' pre-embodied glory comes on him. The disciples hit the deck. They can't even look at Jesus. He's so full of glory, gas-guzzling brilliance. But uh, in this, the disciples do finally look up and they see, do you remember who was with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that they begin to have a discussion. And Luke says that what they were talking about was Jesus coming, here's the word, quote, 
departure. Now, in the Greek language, there are many different ways to talk about leaving one place and going to another. This one was chosen to evoke something. It's actually a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word for exodus. What were they talking about? That Jesus was going to Jerusalem to become the exodus for the salvation of God's people. What does that mean? That means Jesus in Jerusalem would go on a cross, and on that cross, he would be exposed to all the plagues, all the judgment of God against sin. Jesus would be the firstborn son who dies in the dark so that we would be raised to the light. Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, becomes unmade so that we could be made new. Jesus, the one who would bring and will bring at the end of time final judgment, first comes to bear the judgment. Jesus. You know, if you're here this morning and you're checking out Christianity, here's the scandal. Here's what makes Christianity different than any other world religion. Our driving force is grace. God's grace that comes down deeply, deeply enough to save you and save me and wash us all of our sins. On that cross, Jesus, like a giant sponge, soaking up all our sins, wringing them out so that you and I can be pure white of the snow that's coming tomorrow. It's us. It's a scandal, folks. I was reminded of the scandal of this, reading uh, the, the victim impact statements of some of the first witnesses to speak against the United States gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser. One of those was Rachel Denhollander, and she said this in a courtroom with Nasser sitting there. The Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. You! Larry Renault, you, Larry Nasser. So if you see the signs that God is powerful and that he's judging, but yet in the judging, he's working even the judgment to bring salvation. If you see the signs, what should you do? Well, you should become a sign. You see the signs and you become a sign. A sign who, first of all, talks about Jesus. A sign who says, Alpha Course, I'm in. Because my whole reason for existence and believing the signs is to become a sign. So I will. I will fill out, I'll write three names on that little card. And at 11.02, count on me, Larry, I'm going to set my alarm. 11.02, the entire church of Waterstone is going to be praying, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done together for these people. And what an amazing Alpha course we will have in three weeks down at Atlas Coffee. It's going to be phenomenal. I hope there's so many people in there that we have to offer two Alpha courses. And by the way, we still need facilitators if you can help us. 
But I'm asking you, set your alarm. Because if you believe the signs, you become a sign. And that others know Jesus becomes really important to you. You know what else? You believe the sign, you become a sign. You begin to understand that when Jesus came, all those miracles he did was not just a suspension of natural law. It's actually a restoration of natural law. Blind people are not supposed to be blind. Deaf people are not supposed to be deaf. Sick people are not supposed to be sick. But Jesus came to push it all back and say, this is what reality is. And that's what we spend our time now doing, pushing back things like world hunger. And we sign up for Feed My Starving Children, that two-hour block, and we feed children around the world. Why? Because this is the way it's supposed to be, every child having enough food to eat. We don't get cynical. We get busy demonstrating the kingdom of God. So now as we come to the end of this time and transition back into worship, we're going to experience one of the ancient practices. We're going to be anointed with oil, if you're willing, if you want to. There's olive oil. There's six stations around the room in the four corners and the center. Olive oil is a symbol of God's presence. So why are we doing it? Here's why. Because we understand that uh, uh, miracles happen. We believe they happen. But the hard part is, most of the uh, revealed history of God in the, in the Bible, these 1,500 years, the slices of history that actually contain miracles are few and far between. Unfortunately, most of our existence is live, make bricks, and die. And it's very rare, and most Christians have never experienced an actual miracle where they, they knew God took his glove off and reached down and did something miraculous. But I want to remind us of something very important. The real miracle, by the way, is not that God would take his glove off and reach down into your life and do something miraculous, though we long for that. And Jesus even said, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. We long for that. We ask for that. But the real miracle you already have, I am with you. That's the miracle. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the miracle. And you would be anointed today with this presence of God to say, Jesus, I am trusting you. I believe you are with me. I am with me. And so I will keep trusting you. I will lean on you. I will keep asking that you be my way maker and my miracle worker but I will also trust you as my promise keeper and my light in the darkness. So when you're ready, if you want to, as we sing this next song called Waymaker, go to anywhere around the room. I'm gonna ask our, our uh, leaders to get in position. You can extend your hand and have the cross placed on your hand, or you can extend your forehead, and they will speak a one-line blessing over you about the presence and power of Jesus. So let us be with Jesus. Let us talk to our way maker and our light in the darkness.